Emergency procedure training is a routine and necessary part of any pilot's initial training, flight testing, and subsequent check flights throughout their careers. Thankfully, actual emergencies either on the ground or in flight are very rare due to the stringent safety guidelines we need to follow, including training and aircraft routine maintenance. As we know, emergency drills and training scenario situations either not rehearsed at all or correctly can be made worse with incorrect procedures or hesitation in the pilot's response, leading to an incident, accident, or even worse, fatalities. How we are trained and by who goes a long way into how we respond to emergencies and the final outcome in our survivability and living to tell the tale. But are we training pilots for emergency procedures correctly, in a way that the pilot or trainee will respond the way we really want them to do in the real thing? In this episode, I'm going to dive into common training methods used by instructors to meet the criteria laid out in the manual standards and discuss if these methods are really the best way to be used and why. A big episode and lots coming up. So grab a drink, get comfortable, strap in, and let's get into it. G'day everyone and welcome to episode 9 of Flight Training Australia, the podcast all about flight training, private commercial flying in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson, thank you for joining me. If you'd like to catch up on other episodes you may have missed, you can simply go to www.flighttrainingaustralia.com.au for a list of all the podcast services available and uh, find episodes that you may have missed or you can also find other episodes in the server you're using right now. Also, be sure to check out the episode descriptions in the links for relevant content material in the episodes. And uh, you can also find links to my Facebook and Instagram where you can follow me for other training info and just my day-to-day flying life. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a review. It really helps me out. So today we are discussing two main topics. Firstly, emergency procedure training methods used by instructors and how as pilots we should aim to prepare ourselves for the real thing. One only need look to see online on Facebook, for example, full of videos on aircraft accidents and incidents. And I'm not talking about idiots skydiving out of perfectly good aeroplanes filming it crashing into a mountain either. These videos are often shared online for other pilots to see, usually with the intent of learning something from it with the concept of others avoiding the same mistakes. However, there are plenty of keyboard warriors out there who immediately know the exact cause of the crash, what they would have done instead, and clearly seem immune from making the same mistake themselves. The fact is, until we are put in the exact same situation, it's really hard to say what it is in fact we would really do until we are put in that situation ourselves. Reaction time and executing the correct response is critical when handling an in-flight emergency. US Airways Flight 1549 with Captain Sullenberger is a prime example of how extensive experience, familiarity with his aircraft resulted in all passengers and crew surviving what is normally considered a low survival event. The experience of Sully on the A320 led him to alter the manufacturer's operating procedures for an event that was totally unprecedented. 
As the recreation and the simulators by the investigation crew showed, hindsight of what was about to happen, immediate reaction, with a pre-formulated plan in their mind resulted in them unrealistically reaching nearby airports, which when taking into account realistic reaction times and actions were not achievable. The reality is many seconds will go by in the first instance as we try to work out what is going on and what is really happening. But what does experience mean in terms of flight experience? We often see in the news an experienced pilot crash, dot, dot, dot. But what does that mean? Experience is categorised in many ways. Experience means 8,000 hours? Well, yeah, that's a lot of experience. But in what? Flying to a destination and back again? with everything going just fine, or experience in emergency procedures, either through training or actual, in a range of different aircraft with different performance criteria, which at the end of the day is really what's going to save you. You only need to look at airline incidents where the crew have general aviation or military or gliding experience or something else other than just straightforward pilot training and into an airliner, that they are typically the ones that manage to recover and save the aircraft. Those without that experience often don't have as much luck. I often say to my students after graduating that you're one of the most safest pilots in the industry, fresh from training and thinking about emergency procedures as well as routine flight. The problems creep in as you build hours and experience, develop bad habits as you stray from what you were taught, thinking it either doesn't apply to you anymore or just through lack of discipline. And the risks increase and the chances of responding correctly after a long time from practicing weaken. Statistics show that once a pilot reaches the five to eight hundred hour mark, they start to feel like they know it all and can become complacent. This is why I'm such a strong advocate for routine check flights with a suitably experienced instructor practicing general handling maneuvers and emergency procedures. Not because it keeps me and others in a job as a revenue raising activity, but for your and your passengers' safety and confidence. At the end of the day, we all want to come back home safely to our loved ones. So what happens when we conduct emergency training in general aviation? Well, normally we know what's going to happen as it's scheduled as an emergency procedure flight. We announce the failure so the trainee knows it's not real, and we do it with safety in mind, so it is in a fairly controlled and mitigated environment not below certain speeds or altitudes, angles of bank, just working through the emergency because we can't recreate it safely in the flight. The problem with this is it's not realistic. You do not get a genuine response from the trainee pilot as they know it's going to happen first up. When I did my training, things were a bit more spontaneous. Mitigated risks were taken and I reckon I was all the better for it reaching down and turning off the fuel levers, pulling circuit breakers, it all gave a genuine and a far more realistic reaction to what was going on. Today, risk mitigation, threat and error management, SOPs, CASA guidelines and insurance premiums means we can't do this anymore in a real aircraft. So the reliance on simulators and the trainee pilot getting as much from the simulated exercises as possible is critical. Now, I'm not being critical myself of these uh, risk mitigation strategies. I think they're important and they are there for our safety, but there is a negative outcome from it. The element of surprise is what will extract realistic response from the trainee pilot. 
but how can we do this? The moment the instructor's hands go near the throttles to simulate an engine failure, the student knows what's going to go wrong, and it is most likely a circuit emergency lesson anyway. Gee, I wonder what's going to happen. It's when the simulated failure happens at a time that's not announced that you're going to get a far better reaction and idea of how you are going to perform or how your student as an instructor is going to perform. What's going to happen in a real failure? If it's an engine failure, it's going to cough a bit, splutter, RPM will fluctuate or drop entirely. You might get oil pressure or temperature changes, oil on the windscreen, all which can help indicate a possible cause and help guide our reaction. Does any of this get discussed with the trainee or is it all just about pulling throttles on upwind? This is missing when we do emergency training in flight as we can't replicate it. As I said before, we used to reach down and casually turn off the fuel when the student was looking and we got a good real reaction. The student would look at me then wonder what's going on, act a bit confused, play with the throttle until I suggested maybe start the drill. Critical seconds passed, anywhere up to 7 to 10 seconds before they actually motioned to set up the glide, commence the troubleshooting checks. This is realistic, not dropping the nose immediately and running the drills, which is what more often happens. But turning the fuel off is frowned upon. The reality is the possibility of a real engine failure is increased by doing it. So how can we achieve a similar response and help the trainee pilot should the time ever come for them? How about scenarios we can recreate in safety but still don't get the desired response from the trainee pilot? Let's take an undercarriage failure, for instance. I ask this question all the time and constantly get the wrong answer. What is the first thing you do in an undercarriage failure? What do you reckon? Have a think about it. Recycle the gear, push the circuit breaker. Well, if you answered either of these, you'd be wrong. What? I hear you cry. The correct answer is you manoeuvre the aircraft to a safe location, pull out the emergency gear extension phase one checklist. But what if it was something just simple? What if it wasn't? If you're an instructor listening, would you agree that you should be teaching the trainee pilot to depart the circuit area, sort out the problem in safety, then return for a landing or emergency landing if it still fails to extend with emergency services available, should they be? Yes? So do you have your student do this process or do you just do it on downwind and continue in a kind of challenge to get it all done before the base turn? What does this teach your student? Saying one thing and doing another doesn't enforce the learning process. We don't want to do that because we generally feel it's a bit of a waste of money. But is it? Let's consider multi-engine training. Instructors now spend a considerable amount of time learning the theory, the practical elements, and the proficient handling of a twin and how to safely conduct engine failure training in a simulator and the aircraft before gaining their multi-engine training endorsement. Depending on the aircraft loan, the pilot operating handbook guidance, company SOPs, the CASA cap, the throttle or mixture is used to simulate the failure. Now, like I said earlier, when our hands move to the throttle quadrant, the trainee knows an engine failure is about to occur. Plus, we call out practice or simulated to confirm it's not a real event. If the engine is failed using the throttle, 
In addition to the yaw direction of the nose, the trainee can also see the closed throttle, which in turn generally assists them in identifying the failed engine. However, the use of mixture allows the shielding of the mixture levers, creating an element of mystery for the student and forcing them to properly identify the failed engine. So CASA guidance is that we should always use throttles so that we have the immediate return of power should it be required. But again, are we doing the student a disservice by this process? CASA ruling is also no simulated engine phase below 400 feet. And I would have to say with good reason. The incorrect response by the trainee greatly minimises the recovery window for the instructor and is placing everyone at high risk. But this is the kind of training we do need. I remember doing my original Cessna Conquest training, my first multi-engine turbine, and all the engine failures were fairly tame and at altitude. It wasn't until I joined CareFlight and had the benefit of a full level D simulator that I experienced my first V1 cut. V1, for those who don't know, is essentially an engine failure at rotate speed. This training was invaluable in handling the failure, but also in recognising when the auto failure didn't do its thing. I at the time had no appreciation of the significant drag created by the dead, unfeathered propeller and how quickly I had to get onto it before control was lost. I was flying the Conquest around feeling like I had a good handle on it. What if I had a failure V1 in that? This is precisely why CASA have changed the rules for larger aircraft to utilise simulators when they are available. The scenarios that we can create in a simulator are almost endless and so much more valuable than talking through touch drills. But we don't all have a level D simulator accessible to us. But even just a basic desktop sim, you can create some very realistic scenarios for your students that they're going to get some fantastic decision-making thought processes and exposure to scenarios that they haven't necessarily considered. What about other emergencies? Whilst flying a twin Comanche with the main and auxiliary fuel tanks to choose from. The auxiliary tank ran dry, which is a normal practice for the aircraft, before switching back to the mains because the student wasn't monitoring the fuel. Even just after having conducted engine failure drills, the trainee was totally baffled at what happened and took them some time before they got into the drills and realised that they forgot to switch the tanks. Once they did, the engine fired up immediately. This was the reality of a normal pilot reaction. It was unexpected and a natural reaction of disbelief. So some of these scenarios, obviously for pilots with more experience and time and advanced in their careers. What about some more base level scenarios? How about something like a practice force landing? If your instructor pulls the throttle on a nice, convenient, high upwind, close to the high key point, giving you the height and time to plan a nice circuit approach, a nice left circuit so everything's out your window and safely going around at 500 feet. What's wrong with this? Well, firstly, engines rarely fail in convenient locations. Hey, sometimes they can, but not always. Now, don't get me wrong. To learn the skill set in an ab initio environment, we absolutely need to do it like this. We need time for the student to be able to develop the process get the flows happening and judge the descent profile so they know what they're looking for. But once we do this, we need to mix it up a bit. We don't want a rote learn skill 
of repeating the same approach pattern. We need left, we need right, we need high, we need low. So the student can adapt and allow themselves to correlate the skills they know and apply it to the given scenario. What about going around at 500 feet? Well, without a low level rating or conducting the PFL into an airstrip, we need to execute the go around by 500 feet. But this often results in the trainee not having a true appreciation of how their approach has worked out. I ask them all the time, how's it look? And they go, yeah, we're going to make that. Not understanding that their current aiming point is well into the field, by the time they then actually round out, hold off and touch down, they're going to be well and truly through the fence or the trees at the opposite end of the paddock. It's too soon to go around at 500 feet and for them to get a grasp on the descent profile. So we do need to go lower. So a mixture of paddocks and doing PFLs into runways is important. And we can later fine-tune this skill with glide approaches. As a pilot, it's important to remember the key skills initially learned in any phase of training. The good news is we operate in a very safe industry with well-maintained aircraft and good quality training. The trick is to maintain these skills either through flight reviews, upskilling with new endorsements, or just practicing safely yourselves. Takeoff safety briefs are a component I find very poorly done and not at all taken seriously. Don't just rattle off the standard spin. If I have an engine failure after takeoff, I'll lower the nose 30 degrees and slack flap as required. Consider your surroundings and options. Don't just put the nose down and crash into the bushes when there's a road to your left you could have used. Why do we restrict ourselves to 30 degrees either side? Well, again, we're minimising the concept of turning too far, increasing angular bank, increasing back pressure and risk of stall. We exceed the angle of attack, we're going to have problems. So we minimise it. But as we get on with our career, options and understanding means we can reconsider what we were originally taught and adapt it to a new environment. But that, again, is going to be another topic we'll talk about in detail later on. Use of checklists is another. I'll give you a tip. If airline pilots, and remember there's two of them, Use briefing and checklists as a safety tool to prepare for scenarios, either through normal routine procedures or for emergencies, then I reckon you probably should too. Checklists for the single pilot are the single stopgap measure we have to pick up something we've missed. I'll do another episode on this as well. But in short, do your flow, then verify you didn't miss anything with the checklist. But don't just read it because you'll convince yourself you did it and the checklist won't mean anything. Go through each item and visually verify each thing quickly. It won't take long, but you'll have the confidence to know that you haven't missed anything. I so often see pilots quickly doing extra gear and mixture and pitch and throttle and carpet and fuel pump checks or whatever else on short final. You shouldn't have to do that if you've done the checks correctly at the time they're supposed to be done. So if that's you, have a look about how you're operating things and make a few changes. You'll thank yourself for it. So the end message here really is to take any emergency training you receive seriously and get as much out of the exercise as you can. 
don't do an engine failure glide approach with the view of if it doesn't work out, I'll just open up the throttle and try again. Take it as this is real and I have one chance to get it right. You'll get so much more out of it. Keep yourself current. Do your pre-takeoff safety brief and be specific about your takeoff location. Plan your arrival. Brief your actions in the event of a go-around. And when you land, how about a takeoff safety brief all over again? You're at a completely different airport with completely different surroundings. Just because you did it when you left your original departure point doesn't change anything. If you're an instructor, do your best to realistically create a scenario which your trainee can learn from. And don't be afraid to use briefing time on the ground to hash it out and discuss further, discussing variations to the scenario. A good way to understand what your trainee is thinking is to ask them, what would you do if, and go from there. We're always worried about the cost of briefing time and flight time and the cost impacts on a student. But I can tell you that some of this is the best money that they will ever spend and could absolutely mean the difference between a good ending and a sad one. All right, guys, that is it for this week's episode. A heap in there to consider. And like I said, on several topics, I've really only just scraped the surface. I will be expanding on many of these topics later on in much more detail. And I look forward to hearing your feedback and comments on what I've talked about so far already. And if you do have some specific questions based on it, please fire them through and I will cover them in those subsequent episodes. I'd love hearing that feedback. And as I said, if you're listening on the Apple podcast, please leave me a review. Uh, I have really received some awesome messages from you this week. And uh, that is fantastic. But if you can leave those messages on the podcast review, it truly helps the show be seen and found by other aviators like yourself. Even if you don't listen on the platform, if you could just drop a review and then go back to your favorite to listen to, your efforts in doing so mean the world to me. So thank you for that. Remember, you can email me on info at trentrobinsonaviation.com.au. Put a podcast in the subject line, just helps me find it and uh, drop me your questions. Of course, you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram, and the links are in the episode description. And just finally, I went to get my medical done the other day. I was uh, really, really sore. My left ear couldn't hardly hear anything. And uh, the doctor said, are you sure? And I said, yep, I'm definite. All right, until then, blue skies, be safe, and remember the golden rule. Aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers, everyone.